0: And good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on when you've tuned into this edition of Hypnosis Week live now if you're on YouTube or Zoom or another video channel you can see my face and the face of my guest I'm about to introduce you to if of course you're on one of the audio podcast channels you can't see our faces perhaps you're glad of that who knows but if you're curious and you want to see our body language and facial expressions after you've heard the wisdom that's imparted then of course get yourself over to hypnosisweek.com and click to watch the video version okay so this week's guest or rather this week's second or third guest because we're still in lockdown and we're doing more of these shows than normal to help me keep my sanity. This gentleman I've known of for many, many years now. He's um, He's been involved in the field of stage hypnosis. We will touch on that during the interview. He's been involved in the fields of hypnotherapy, and L We'll touch on that as well. He's been involved in sports, psychology, motivation, hypnosis. He's been massively involved in mind persuasion uh but i don't mean in the mind control um, i'm not talking mk ultra stuff there i'm talking mind persuasion as in peak performance uh helping sports individuals especially golfers which is something i'm sure we'll uh, also touch on and a whole host of other areas including i know a lot of my listeners is. An amazing amount of hypnotherapists I've discovered over the past 12 months. I've got a a, a sideline hobby in magic and mentalism. Uh, A lot of stage hypnotists, I knew, but I found out over the past year, a lot of hypnotherapists. And indeed, Brian has a background in that as well. So please welcome to the show, Brian Halliday, formerly known as, well, still, if he was going to do shows again, as Shrink as well, some of you may recall. Welcome to the show, Brian. Hi, how are you doing, Alex? I'm good, thanks, other than this complete and utter fast-approaching a year of
1: disruption to everything. Uh, it's absolutely crazy. I mean, it's a, it's a real challenge just keeping sane and trying to keep moving forward really at the moment. So, yeah, that's yeah. where I am right now as well, just trying my best. But, funnily enough, I'm actually getting clients online now, so cool. there does seem to be some sort of uh, positives at the end of it.
0: Well, yeah, less travelling. Um
1: yeah, let's try. Well, I actually, quick, like I like to travel further than my bathroom, though, you know. Nice <laughs> yeah,
0: fair enough, there is that. Look, let's let's dive in at the beginning. I, I know a bit of your background from seeing it on Magic and the Hypnosis 4 and, and and such like. And I've seen the odd bit of video, although you haven't got a right lot out there, but I've seen the odd bits of video of you when you did Edinburgh Festival and, uh, and whatnot, which we'll come to later. But there was a time when Brian Halliday wasn't. The mind persuasionist when he wasn't a mentalist when he wasn't a stage hypnotist when he wasn't a therapist how did you get into this crazy field what was your journey
1: um well uh, to be honest like a lot of people i remember the old american comics were used to at the back get the thing that there was advert of the you know the old hypno
0: and the and that, eye
1: glasses. And x-ray glasses but back then in, in the old days you couldn't get anything from america it was too expensive or you didn't know how to send away from it not like today so <clears throat> i used to dream about um being able to uh, hypnotize people and get them to do what i wanted and then one day i seen an advert in some uh, newspaper for the do you remember the emsley joke book no it was a bit like uh, magic books by post but it wasn't quite as good as that and there was a, a hypnosis booklet and it was like three pages and it was like about six pins or something like that six pence or something and um, it was just basically an induction with three pages and that's how I, I, I started to learn would do hypnosis I'd be about 10 year old at the time right and so I remember the first person I hypnotized uh, it was really quite funny I live in a real working class area and quite a hard area and um we lived in a sort of three, three-storey landing, and one of my friends came around and we were going to come into my bedroom and practice uh, hypnosis, but my mother wasn't in, and I didn't have a key, so we did it in the stair. And I remember it was really quite funny. We had them sort of lying spedigal out on the stair, and um, just by um, going through this induction, I, man- I managed to get them uh, sort of totally rigid, cataleptic for the first time, and I didn't know what I was doing. Do you and remember so-
0: what style of... well, what? I say style of induction, but I mean, what roughly what
1: the induction was from this little booklet. It's just one of the sort of straightforward countdowns. It was like a really, oh, really right. basic, really basic uh, induction. But it was quite funny because um, my mate was outside my front door, sped eagled out and he couldn't move and he started to panic. And um, he says, going for my mother, can't for my mother to come and get me. I can't move. <laughs> so I was trying to bring him around and I couldn't bring him around. I couldn't get him out of it. So then the funny bit was my neighbour started to come up the stairs. So, me and my other friend that was there, we went up to the top of the landing and just left him lying there outside her door like a sped like an eagle. Sorry, and I shouldn't she, laugh, but she came up the stairs and just looked at him and he just lay like that and she just stepped <laughs> over him and went in the door. <laughs> and uh, that was the first person hypnotised. So,
0: um, I've got to ask the obvious
1: question how did he end up out of it then if you had problems bringing him but... round? we came back down the stairs and we stood him up and he was actually standing up like this (laughs) in the position he'd been hypnotized, right? And I remember in these days, um, I'd be about probably 11, 12 at that time and I had one of these leather um, belts and I had like the American Eagle symbol and it had the pointy bits on it. So what we had to do is I had to put my my arms around his waist and walk him down the stairs like this, (laughs) stairs like this. And then as, as I grabbed him, my belt kind of scratched into him and he started to move with his, the pain or something. And by the time we got to the bottom of the stairs, he was uh, walking again. It's something we still talk about when I see him. He lives in Australia now, but he still talks about that uh, experience. That was the first person that I sort of hypnotised, if you like. Excellent. Which I don't know why he just jumped into me,
0: but I know in, uh, God, God, most of it's antiquated, but it's quite relevant to that in Armin McGill's the original, well, it's in the new encyclopedia as well, but the old, the art of stage hypnosis and the encyclopedia of stage hypnosis in the bit about waking people up where it goes, if you get sleepers, people who are difficult to get, to come round, uh, tell them that on the count of three you're going to uh, stab them with a, a, a pin and just you touch them with the tip of a pen and it'll scare really? the living daylights out of them and shock them out of it. That's
1: kind of similar to what you accidentally did with your belt. What it was, yeah, it was so. Um, but um, it was it was quite funny though. But I mean, and I, you know, I I did a lot of things around about that time, about <clears throat> age eleven, twelve, real disasters. So that's sort of like how I started, and um, that's. But it's always something I've been in, I've been interested in as far as I can remember, going all the way back.
0: Excellent. Well, that's what we've got in common. I wasn't quite. I don't think I was twelve. I was more like thirteen when I started playing around with it in the playground at school and uh, locking people's hands together. Uh-huh. And, um, and you know, my parents getting called in by the headmaster because I shouldn't be doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously, you went, I know you then went into study studying it in a more what they call conventional fashion. So, yeah. tell us more how you have progressed.
1: Well, my, when I, the way I go into professionally was, um, it was just basically an advert of Exchange and Mark, and um, it was I trained with the same person. I think you trained with originally Bentley Evans. I didn't actually train with no, Bentley. I knew Bentley. No. Um, I'd
0: say I didn't train with him. I met up with him on a number of occasions, and again, uh, he gave me advice and stuff. But mm-hmm. actually, the Exchange and Mark bit is a mutual link. But it was a guy who was advertising in Exchange and Mark before Bentley, a guy called Brian Howard also right. known as Hobrim, Master of the Tarot, sadly no longer with us.
1: Uh-huh. All right. So, well, I went and spent, I think it was three days down in Blackpool, then I went over and spent a good few weeks with him over in Spain, and I just studied his music and helped him out. Then when I came back, <clears throat> what I basically did was, it was just before Paul McKenna was about to break out, and hypnosis was becoming really quite popular in the 90s, it was probably the best, the golden era, yeah. at least for my generation, and what basically happened was I got the book Unlimited Power and there was no NLP trainings in the UK at that time that I knew of anyway and the one thing I got from that book was the, the, the notion about modelling if somebody else can do it if you copy the model you can do it so at that time there was quite a few hypnotists all over the country starting to spring up so I travelled about to a few different cities and I looked at the, the, the hypnosis shows that were the most popular and at the time at that time they seemed to be the late night shows and they seemed to be the sort of adult type shows and so I went in and recorded three or four different shows from different people. I worked out how the um, how the suggestions uh, worked, etc. And then I looked at the, the the comedians of the day. And I remember Jerry Sadowitz was really popular at the time. Uh, uh, I copied some uh, uh, elements of his done in paper, and even some some Bernard Manning put downs for us. I started doing the clubs, and so I then looked at all the marketing and the advertising that was going on for shows, and. Um, I basically came straight off that three-day course, and I be two weeks were helping Bentley with his music. And the, the actual court, the actual training he gave him was really basic. It wasn't really good enough to go and do big shows. Yeah. So what I did was I put together this um, uh, this model, if you like, and I jumped into a thousand-seat the audience in Edinburgh at Clark Street. And uh, I remember at the time Peter Powers was trying to get in, Robert Harper was trying to get in, and i I'd I'd, I'd I'd only just done a few tiny little shows, right? And um, the manager. Uh, uh, who was there, was telling me that, um, are you sure you're going to do this? And I was I was unemployed at the time. I, I, had, I had no money. I committed myself to four nights, uh, one after the other. And um, he says, well, what we'll do is we'll take the money off the ticket money and whatever else you owe us, you'll pay us. And I was going, no, no, you'll be fine. It'll be fine. Don't worry about it. And um, so basically what happened was, um, I remember standing there, um, uh, uh, you know, in his office, and I could see a letter from Peter Powers there trying to get into the, uh, the audience at that time. So I'd just be Peter Powers and I'd practically uh, no experience in doing big shows, but I had this model on paper. And um, <coughs> so so when I got the tickets printed up, um, we'd, we also did fly posting for six weeks solid uh, every single night, everywhere. You can't get away with that now. And mm-hmm. he handed me the tickets back over. I says, what's that for you? Well, you better go and try and sell them in the pubs. And I'm going, no, don't worry. We'll sell them at no problem, you know. And we did. turned away 200 people at the door on the first night and we ended extended it for 12 weeks so that was 1000 seats so um, if
0: you were fly pitching all over the place with fly posting with bills up uh yeah in fairness word does tend to get around repetition people seeing the same thing a lot yeah
1: also what i did was i actually planned it because because i live in edinburgh obviously i could what i did was i picked at the time i picked halloween because it was between christmas and summer so people were back from the summer holidays all the new students were in and back in those days, it was always quiet at that time. So I, I never really planned to ever do a show in the festival because nobody makes any money in the festival. Mm. So, Too much going on. Yeah, so I, I had this kind of model down and it, and it did. It worked out really well. And we did that for about three years, three and a half, four years
0: in that place. Bloody hell. So I mean, talk about, well, I was going to say, talk about luck, but I mean, the old truth is luck's when preparation meets opportunity. you prepared, done training, got a plan together and you got off your ass and actually went pitching this rather than waiting for something to happen.
1: Well, the timing was right as well, because, I mean, if you went back about a year or two later, you, I mean, like, uh, all, all the hypnotists jumped in at the, uh, after I stopped doing it because it was when the stage hypnosis was starting to decline. Andrew Newton jumped in, Peter Powers jumped in, they all jumped in after me, but they couldn't even half fill the place. But that was partially to do with the timing. But apparently, according to the, uh, uh, the manager at the time, he said he had Robert Halpern there for years and years and years before that. Even when I was a kid growing up, it was one of his favourite haunts. But up to that date, my show was the most successful ever. So, again, it was timing and probably having the right material as well for the, at that time because it was really fresh and new and different. And, um, yeah, so, yeah, it was a bit of luck, I suppose, as well.
0: Excellent. So
1: that was very much a baptism of
0: fire, I would think, so to speak.
1: Well, yeah, I just jumped in. I mean, I'd never done a big show before and it was all on paper and it was all worked out from going to see all these different shows and sitting down and, I mean, Bentley Evans didn't, Teach any of this in his course. It was just sitting down, working out the the structure and the the, the suggestions, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And the only way you can test these things is to jump in and do it. And that's what I did. So I remember the first show, I would have like a it was a two-hour show, and I would have the um, I would have the what do you call it the 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 interval where I would send people into the into the, pub, the bar area, and I was too frightened to let them go. The first couple of shows, I, I just kept going right through the interval. <laughs> Will they come
0: back
1: yeah <laughs> that's right so it took me a couple of shows to get my confidence but by the end of it I was so slick after a, a year or so I was so slick at, at doing it and what I also found was as well you started off using skits that you got from different places but then what I would do is I would have a, a part of the show where it'd be purely just around trying to invent my own stuff and you knew that you had good stuff either side of it um uh, so if so if it, if it kind of flopped you know you could pull the show back because you're getting of good bits on on both sides. And mm-hmm. so over a period of time, I started to make it more of my own, but I started off just taking chunks from different performers, like even Jerry Sadovitz, some of the put-down put lines in that as well, I took from him. But then I came up with my own after it. I'm not going to mention... Sometimes I'll mention them. sometimes I won't, because there may be
0: legal reasons, not because of what I'm saying isn't true, just because without mentioning names, there's certain people that I've come to legal agreements with through solicitors that I won't mention their name, mm. and they keep shut about me. Otherwise, <clears throat> problems. Uh, so without mentioning names, but I'm sure you can fill in the blanks yourself, um, the likes of Peter Powers and other individuals who may have wanted to get into, uh, back into the uh, venue you've just mentioned uh, once they realised you were doing well in there, um, having met these people and knowing them on various levels, I would imagine that they more certainly, I doubt they would have come along themselves, but I imagine they definitely sent somebody to spy on what was going on. Um did you get the obligatory at any point message if you were using any of their bits, the stop using that material or I'll break your effing legs? I got, I got nothing like that at all. Oh, maybe that's because of shrink. You look big and imposing.
1: Because <laughs> there's are... another thing as well that was really strange about the Odeon, right? The Odeon used to be like a, used to be like a huge um, venue, but like a lot of these places, it got cut off into like the cinema in kind of different levels. Mm. So the thousand seer was up the stairs, and what they did was, where, where the balcony was, right? They actually put this. Uh, this is really weird, man. But they actually put this. Um, it was like a flooring down, like a ceiling. Uh, but it was only designed for watching movies. It wasn't designed for doing any performances or any shows. And the funny thing was the engineer only certified it for only having six people in it. Ah. And what happened <laughs> And what happened was the manager was saying to me, he was saying, well, can you just take sort of like six people in at a time and then put them back in the audience? I says, well, the show doesn't really work that way. Oh. I says, but, but I'll try and keep it to a minimum of 10 or 14. And um, on the first night when I asked for volunteers, I was, again, it was luck because Paul McKenna just started that week on the TV. So it was, it was a bit of luck in it as well. After, after the inductions done for you if they come in believing well, what they are just saying, And also there hadn't been any stage hypnosis around for years and years and years. So it was really fresh. So when I asked for volunteers, it was like a tsunami. They weren't even running down the aisles. They were all jumping over the seats and coming on. I had over, <laughs> had over 100 on a hundred people on a stage, right? It's only certified for six people. And and also there was like curtains at the back that used to go across the screen like, and behind the screen, uh, behind the curtains, if you went behind the curtains, 10 or 15 feet, they hadn't even bullet off. It just, the the stage just come to an end and it was a 30 feet drop, 30, 40 feet drop. And to make matters worse, uh, the audience wanted to save money, so they didn't have any security. I brought my mate along, he was the only security I had. (laughs) And his job was to blow up the rubber dolls and things and throw them on the stage. Bloody but, hell! But but he was the only security. And believe it or not, throughout that whole few years I was there, we never had one incident. <laughs> Blimey! So I mean, nowadays you wouldn't do that. So I mean, looking back on it, it was it was just it was just a really crazy time. But it worked. So. How
0: did you get out? When how did you overcome the initial um, uh, stumbling block? This will be educational to those interested. The initial stumbling block. Of um, the questions they ask when you apply for the license under the 52 Entertainments Act of, where have you done shows
1: before? When it's your first show. You know, the thing is, when I did, did I did? Um, did I, I must have got a license. I didn't even think I had a license back then. I didn't anybody really bothered because the shows had been away for such a long time. They didn't they? Didn't really bother bother till. Uh, years after that, when all the problems started to come out and all the crappy hypnotists used to come in the bars and were causing problems, mm. um, I can't even remember if I if I applied for a license or not. Nobody stopped me. Maybe That's I did, tough. but if I did apply for them, it was really really easy back mm. then. I think I did apply, and it was only about 30-40 pounds or something. It wasn't a lot of money.
0: I just wondered how you got over. I know now. Maybe they didn't ask that then, but that, that now did very much. Name, you know, several venues you've done recently, so we can contact them, type thing, and check everything right, right. went well.
1: Um, well, when I did the when I did the festival years later, I think it was in two thousand and ten. Um, there was a license involved, but they didn't even come to me. The it was the venue that the, the, that was really the one that was under the microscope. It wasn't really me.
0: Right, must be well. I found it a bit different when I did the festival a couple of years back with Simon Warner. We Well, I had to negotiate with them because they were trying to charge him for every single night of the run, a separate licence. We got it for one fee in the end for the entire run, but I don't. I suppose it depends who's in charge of licensing at the time. I I think it varies.
1: And I I think when I was doing the Odin away back then, I think it had been away for such a long time. Robert Halpern was the big guy up here for a long time, but... There hadn't been a a, a hypnotist for like well over a decade anyway. Whatever happened to Robert? He went from he he suddenly disappeared from
0: Glasgow and he went and lived on Fitzroy Muse or Fitzroy Avenue. It's Fitzroy something in London. Right. And did a couple of shows up there that got covered by the stage and then apparently died. But nobody. Nobody seems to have been to his funeral or have ever encountered who knew him. Right. There's all these rumors that he may have just disappeared to avoid paying massive tax bills.
1: I heard somewhere, I was on some forum, somebody came on who actually knew him or something like that. And apparently he went back to Ireland because he, he lived yeah. in Edinburgh most of the time, but he was Irish as far as I know. So I heard he went, I mean, there was a rumor that he went back and he had a, something like a chicken farm or something stupid like that. I don't know if that was true or not, but um, he, I, I, from what I've seen in that forum, And it was a Glasgow forum people were talking about and uh, he went back to Ireland and I think he died over there. So that's all I know. Probably to avoid the tax and there's
0: probably an element of both. Blimey. Strange business. So you had this baptism of fire starting to stage hypnosis, which was, as you say, an element of the right timing. But still, nonetheless, you still had to have the ability, the balls, the confidence and a, a degree of talent as well. To be able to pull it off and keep it going. Getting started one thing, but the mm-hmm. fact that you, you kept it going over that kind of time period is you know pretty phenomenal. Why why did that kind of tail off? Because I know you for a while you stopped you kind of stopped doing stage stuff before then you resurrected it again for Edinburgh. Um,
1: the reason it tailed off is I mean stage hypnosis kind of died towards the end of the 90s anyway because all of a sudden every man and his dog wanted to be a hypnotist and every pub had a hypnotist and then a, had a lot of dreadful hypnotists. Then all the problems came out and then the big thing with Robert Harpern with the person in front of um, the Glasgow Pavilion and breaking their heart. And it, uh, uh, that case came up, I think it happened years before. But as you remember, there was like a witch hunt in the press for hypnot- uh, stage hypnosis. And then so what happened was the crowds just started to disappear. And um, I just disappeared with it really. And years later, there was a small revival, but I, I'd, I'd got used to making three, four, something's nearly 5,000 pounds for a show back then. And I just couldn't go back to working for a few hundred pounds. I just couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. So where did your,
0: were you doing any mentalism magic stuff during that time? Cause I guess once you get the bug for performing, it is a, for a lot of people anyway, it can be like a drug addiction. Yeah, you know, yeah. Um, it has to be fulfilled somewhere. Now, I know obviously that may have happened with you going into corporate companies and stuff. That's a similar thing. How did you fill that gap, as it were?
1: Well, for a, for a wee while, I tried some of the psychic fairs and I did some kind of palm reading and tarot cards for a, a wee oh. while. But I didn't like that because I, I could hear the, the so-called, um, you know, shut eyes. The, the people who really believe in it. And I could overhear some of the advice they were giving people, and I was shocked with some of the things they were telling them to do. And I just didn't want to be part of that scene. So I came out of that. But um, I still did some of the clubs when we had some working men's clubs and some of the students' unions. And I would maybe split it up with a, an hour of uh, 45 minutes of hypnosis and an hour of uh, mentalism. So um, I was doing the mind reading and that kind of stuff back then as well. So I, I did that on and off for a few years. Because mentalism-wise, um,
0: you, you, you've created routines as well and um, come up with ingenious uses for devices, may I may, may all, all, allude to. Um,
1: do, you want, do, you, do you still sell modified sex toys? Um, well, the actual sex toy I was selling has disappeared, so you can't get one with such a good transmitter for the cheap. But oh, to this oh, day... Okay. But to this day, believe it or not, I still sell the instructions for 30 quid. Yeah? Yeah, because the co- I created a code in there that is still used by a lot of people and they still know about it. And the, the, there is a word that still goes around. People buy all these more up-to-date thumpers, but when they want a code, they come to me, and I still sell the code occasionally. Ah,
0: cool. Well, there will be, for if anyone's mentalism inclined, there will be, below this video and on the audio podcast channel's links to... Uh, whatever links that Brian gives me, one of them is advancedmind.co.uk. But if he's got any others, here, he'll email me with them, and I'll put them below. And anything
1: that, any that's an old site now, so I would like get rid of that that, that link. But I've, I'm, I'm just working on new sites at the moment. I'm sort of moving in a, I see a new area, but it's an area I started um, years ago, and again when the recession hit, I stopped it. But I've kind of started moving back into it again. Well, I'll stick his Facebook under. The, the point is, you'll be able to get hold of him
0: and ask right. him, yeah, I do you mentalism if you've got some good uses for a thumper, if you're a mentalist, you'll know what a thumper is, basically. And if you're not, it won't be too difficult for you to find out if you'd like to know about a device that I can tell you for certain. uh, You know, your likes of Darren Brown and people of that ilk have used on a number of occasions in things they've done. Um, Give us an example without... They'll either know what a thumper is or they won't. Uh-huh. Uh, but give us an example of how one of your creations may look to somebody watching.
1: Well, uh, some of the effects that came from this, because I know a lot, tons of people bought them. I've seen them being used on just about every show. Every mind reader shows has used one at least one of the effects from it. So one of the effects that you could do, for example, one of my favourite effects, which was really simple to do, I would walk in. Uh, I would walk in to the the room and what I would uh, do was I'd put a pad in the uh, the table and I'd get two people to escort me out the room and uh, a member of the committee in the club would pick somebody, they would come up, they would do a drawing, they would put it uh, face down, they'd go and sit down. I'd come back in and I'd start looking at the drawing and from that drawing I could deduce um, I could basically deduce certain things. So, so for example, I would look at it and uh, at the drawing, and I would, I would maybe say, I maybe pick something about uh, where it was positioned on the paper, and I would say this person's like more likely to be more logical than emotional. Um, um, so, uh, Chris, what was it again? I right, was that was So, I so what I would say was they would so so I'd be picking at the sex for that, for example, right? So I log- I say they're more logical. I said I know this might sound sexist, but the chances are um uh, this person could be um male or, or or male or female male I'm not quite sure um and then so, so, so anyway I could tell um by their age group by their uh the pet that they own all that kind of stuff I can eliminate the audiences they put their hands and how many people for example has a cat how many people has a dog and I look at it and say I think this person actually owns a dog could all the cat people sit down And we'd keep keep eliminating it like that till we'll have three or four people back on stage and I'd give it to the actual person who'd done it that way. And so it looked like it was cold reading and it looked like it was eliminating people bit by bit. But that was like a really, really simple use uh, of the thumper. Another one would be, I would be sitting on my seat and somebody would be standing behind me. You could have a blindfold on, it wouldn't really matter. But they would hold up jumbo cars and you would say red, black, red, black. You would fake it a few times getting it wrong. And then you would, what they would say, uh, then what you would say, right, could you please um, keep picking the cards up and I'm going to tell you when to stop. And then you say, stop. So you stop them at one and uh, say, it's the king of diamonds. You've got the king of diamonds in your hand, things like that. Another, one, yeah. another good one would be, you could also go into another room. Somebody could do a, uh, with, with a group of people, uh, a group of people in one room. You could go out the room with a few people and somebody could do a, draw anything And you could actually be in another room uh, with witnesses around you and you could actually draw what they've drawn in in the other room. So so the thing about this code was the first effect I told you was like really the most basic use, but it was like a a really big effect. Um, But the the code also allowed you to do drawing dupes and things like that, which I've never seen anybody else doing before.
0: Right. Cool. Now, Without going into what thumbprint, yeah, they know you don't mentally And okay. uh, if you're interested, you'll go and find out stage hypnotists and therapists that are into this stuff. And we I can't remember if it was Joseph Dunninger. No, because Dunninger was the one. Those who for those who believe no explanation is necessary, for those that do not, normal suffice. So it might not have been him, but it is. Who said anyway, the phrase is you might know. I don't care if I have to use 999 members of a 1,000-seat audience. It might Mm. have been to fool one if that person's like a highly important individual and I could end up getting a contract out of it. In other words, they're basically saying there are times and places where the use of stooges, confederates, call them what you will, is is the best solution, is impactful and stuff. And obviously – for use of such a device,
1: you need a, a system hidden, invisible, a system. don't you? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it, well, I mean, like, I think it's fair to say, and it's not—it's basically a hidden um, messaging system, signalling system.
0: Mm. But also um, you need a code to decide for which we yeah. very cleverly come up with, which is where the real gold is. Uh, so, anyone who's interested in that, simple fact is, if you go in the green place, the magic cafe, for those that um, are aware and typing the name shrink and thumper there are threads galore where there's there's some people being idiots as they always do on forums but the vast majority of the comments are from people who've actually got his manuscript and praising how how good the material is so that's clune the so um, so right, so you were fulfilling your performing that way. That's cool. That makes sense. But alongside of all this, I know you were also breaking into the corporate arena with your motivation, your peak performance, uh, and your persuasion work and stuff. How, how did that come about? Because I know you developed a lot of your own kind of strategies and stuff.
1: Again, it was something, that, uh, again, it's a really quite a strange way how we got into that because it's something I was wanting to do. I always wanted to work with salespeople for some reason. And um, I used to drive back past this Mercedes-Benz dealership every day. And I used to imagine, maybe this is a mistake I made that I would recommend if you're going to do visualization, you should be really careful. I used to drive past this place every day and I used to see pounds and coins all kind of pouring into this place. And I was pouring it into this. I did pouring it into it. And I didn't know how I was actually going to get in, into it. Um, uh, the dealerships because I hadn't any experience at all with uh, sales training or anything like that and then one day I met this girl in a pub who we were just we just got talking and I actually believe she's a hypnotherapist now and um, somehow I must have got into the subject and it turned out her boyfriend used to be a trainer for them and Uh so I went out to see him so he gave me the name of the operations manager and then I used his name to get the first meeting Uh And uh, it took me six months and I basically hypnotized him every time I went and uh, fired off all these triggers and had no experience whatsoever um, of doing any training. And uh, after about six months of wearing this guy down, going out to see him, and when I used to go out to see him, I'd spend two or three hours with him and he told me everything I knew about his family. I knew he had a junk in his family. I knew he bought this big castle in Spain. I knew he was a millionaire, I knew all that stuff. And eventually he said, um, okay then, Brian, he said, um, because I'll tell you what I did, basically, he was a big fan of Jack Black, who would have been a competitor of mine, I suppose, but Jack Black was really a lot, pretty successful. And every time he spoke about Jack Black, what? what and, and this is what I, I teach people to do now, whenever everybody gets excited about anything, you want to push them further into that excitement, because to me, that's what I call an excitement trance, right? So whenever he spoke about Jack Black, he gave Jack Black for the credit. They had this big castle. You know, this money. And I used to say, "Nick, that's right." And you know, this stuff works. And what I would do is, I put my hand out like that, uh, palm up, and I said, "Well, that's that's right, Nick. You know, this stuff works. You know, this stuff works." So I did that over numerous meetings. So when he came to the point, he says, "Right, we mean to give you a shot at doing this, Brian." I goes, "Okay, then." He says, "Right. What we'll do is we'll arrange something, and you can uh, you can do it for 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 free. And if it works out." Um, We'll pay you. And I says, no, no. I says, I don't do it for free. And I had this figure in my mind for £2,000 for two days, right? And just as it was coming out my lips, it jumped from £2,000 to £6,000 for two days training. And he, st- he actually stood up and looked at me, and he swore to me. He called me an FNB, right? The Tope's voice. And I says, but Nick, you know this stuff works. And I could see the... Con- the anchor, yeah. <laughs> I could see the confusion in his face. Uh, and then he just sat down. He got a calculator out. And he said, "Okay, it's fourteen salespeople. They only need to sort of like, you know, sell an extra car, half half a car each, to make the money for it." And um, we did it, and I worked with them for the two days, and we broke all the sales records in two days.
0: Excellent. So, given you hadn't had previous experience of doing sales training, you obviously had a whole toolkit of tools there and stuff. Because uh, I know from your bio, you you you, you certified in NLP, which, let's face it, just a fancy name for repackaging old psychological conditioning techniques in general, uh, in 93. What, what 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 approach did you take with the salespeople to get such wonderful rapid results, given you hadn't done it before?
1: Um, I'd actually done some work for unemployed and for ex-drug and alcohol people before that. Ah, and um, I tested a lot of stuff, and again, I got the be- I got I got better better results than anybody else at that time. Uh, I just one story before I jump on to that. I remember I used to practice my mentalism on the people that I was working with who were ex-alcohol and drug users, and it's quite funny because I used to do you know the PK touches, mm-hmm. Banachek's Peaky touches. I did that once or twice, and it's really funny. And um, it was really quite funny because you know the you know the traditional peaky touches you have to be within striking distance of the people you're working with yeah every time i did it somebody from the other side of the room felt it as well (laughs) (laughs) excellent because when so anyway so the the approach that i used definitely came from stage hypnosis the stage hypnosis uh uh, came and the idea behind the, uh, the stage hypnosis was that as you know stage hypnosis you have to condition people to get them to a certain state before you can get them to do anything, they're really suggestible, if you like. Mm-hmm. And so, basically, what I did over the two days was I organised the two days like a stage hypnosis show. So I was teaching them some um, NLP sort of types of techniques, but they were structured in such a way that as they were going through them, they thought they were just learning the techniques. But they were oh, they were making the changes, but at the same time, they were going they were getting more and more conditioned. So by the second day, I could dining with them and I didn't have a long time to spend them to teach them all these language patterns. So basically what I did is on the second day, their mind was wide open and I rammed all these um, uh, really simple language patterns in them. And a lot of the stuff was based on the stage by teaching them how to take control and command. So for example, some people would say something like, when I was finding out things to work with, they would, what would happen, one of the objections I would get when people came in to the, the showrooms, people would say, well, I'm just looking. I says, well, when they do that, grab them by the wrist of you, and say, oh, you're just looking, so you'll really want to look at this, and you just grab them and get them to look at what you want, and then you went into the other stuff I, I, I taught them. And so, the, so there was a lot of stuff like that that actually came from the stage, and I actually think that's what makes me totally different from any of the other sales trainers out there, or even the NLP people that are out there, because everything that I do is filtered through from my early um, experiences on stage.
0: Yeah, yeah, totally different perspective. Excellent. Because I know you've done that in companies, but I know that um, it's pretty much the same foundation, so to speak, but used and perhaps tweaked slightly differently in the um, sports arena, especially in golf and stuff. how did that come about? Is it just
1: because you like golf or? No, I actually got banned by the PEGA and I got banned by all the golf courses in, in my area. So oh. I, I kind of gave up with it, yeah. Um, and I, got, I actually got booted out of uh, Mercedes-Benz as well because the, there was three directors and the one guy that um, got me in, the other two wouldn't see them because they'd got salespeople in for two and a half years and I did in two days what they couldn't do in two and a half years. And instead of embracing me, they, they, they didn't want to go further with it. But with the PGA, I actually was um, a bit fed up one day because the stage hypnosis had died and I was just fed up with the business, uh, uh, spending six months to get into business. And I was looking to try something different. And um, I was looking at the maps online and I seen all these green areas all over Scotland. And I looked at it again, I thought, Chris, these are all golf courses. I thought there's a fortune to be made uh, uh, teaching golfers. Mm -hmm. And um, so I decided to... um, uh, create a program called secret golf mind and so basically what secret golf mind is, it's all about the it's what i found out when i started to do my research like anything else like sales and everything that golf is what i call an unconscious game you can't play it consciously in fact the minute you try and play it consciously that's when it falls apart it has to be you're not an a pilot and so and so like one of the basic things uh, or, or or approaches i have when i'm working with uh, organizations or golf golfers or whatever I'm trying to find the right level of arousal. Uh, I'm trying to program in the correct level of arousal for them to access the best shots. And it's all done through, it's all done through anchoring. And the way I worked with golfers was, if you could imagine, um, you know, when when airplanes come into land, they go on automatic pilot and they have all these kind of beacons on the on the earth that guide them in. Yeah. And so basically that's what I did with the golfers. Different parts of the golf course, different clubs, trigger different uh, anchors and different levels of uh, arousal that allowed them to get access to the best shots. So what I was training people to do was the minute they walked onto the golf course, they would basically go into trance and they wouldn't even think about what they were doing and they would get guided along with these anchors. And there's an actual video on YouTube with Tiger Woods talking about that. He says when he hit all his best shots, all he can remember is taking the golf club out of the... Uh, the bag and putting it back in he can't remember anything in between and he'd had oh. think work with him since he was uh, ages of 12 and that's what I based um, Secret Golf uh, mind on all these years and I worked with one guy called um, Elliot Saltman who had been caught cheating and uh, all the big top names were uh, trying to ban him in fact if you type in his name now all you'll see is Elliot the Cheat, Elliot the Cheat uh, oh. and then This went on for a couple of years, so he couldn't even play golf at that point. Every time he went up the town for a drink, he would get called cheap from the other side of the bar, and he'd become really paranoid. So I worked with Elliot for four sessions, and after the fourth session, he went out and he came second in the Irish Bank Open. Then a couple of weeks later, he won the Irish Masters, broke all the sales records uh, that Colin Montgomery set. He was number one in the Euro Tour, and he qualified for the Masters. And by this time... His PR and his publicity just went uh, through the roof, and he was getting interviewed on the telly. He was getting interviewed in all the papers, and they were asking him where his new relaxed, stylish golf came from. And of course, I called it secret golf mind, so that so nobody spoke about me or would, would tell me. And uh, and then his golf coach tried to um, cut me out, uh, thinking he had fixed. I'd fixed the problem, and I didn't travel with him down to the Masters and the golf coach, and did all the work I did, and he all the. Higher expectations on him in the press. He didn't handle the pressure, and he just went right down. And he's not. He doesn't play golf anymore. And then round about that time as well, I met somebody who um, put together the syllabus for the degrees for the Scottish PGA um, coaches. And he wanted me to be part of the degree. He says that the reason why in the UK we're falling behind in golf is because we're not keeping up with the, uh, the mental game. He says I want I want you to be part of the me- uh, the actual degree. He said, "And I'm going to give you a contract to work with 18 of the, the the coaches because some of them, some of them actually want to be professional golfers. They don't all, don't all just want to be coaches." He said, "And um, he said, Jehovah, So it was going to be really good money. It was going to be really prestigious. And at the last minute, what happened was, um, what actually happened was the um, PJ turned around and said to the guy that if you want to work with Brian, you're going to have to leave your job, which he did because he." he was that strongly felt that strong about it mm. and then i started to run at that time i'd be also been running seminars in one place um uh th- th- through in Fife. and, five, and um, i was getting emails from other the people that came on it i had about six people on the actual seminar i had maybe f- uh, the actual four week seminar and i had um I had maybe like say 50 or 60 in the, in the actual evening and i got the free evening, I got so many emails from people saying, you know, I've spent a fortune on CDs and books and lessons over the years. I'm going to, after what you've just told me, I'm going to burn them all. i got all that from, from them. And not one golf coach to this day would look me in the eye and shake my hands because they know that the golf industry is a complete scam to keep people stuck where they are, to keep selling them these golf clubs, these expensive gizmos. And they haven't even found a way to make money at hypnosis, and that's why they banned me. And no club will allow me to go on and do seminars or anything because
0: of that. Bloody hell, it's taking their income away,
1: yeah. The other thing is, of course, Elliot Solman did so well, uh, Tiger Woods' caddy put a bet on, bet on him as an outside man to uh, win, win, win the Masters. And that, I mean, I, I don't, I've never even played a game of golf, I don't know anything about golf. so. I went from there to that, so I almost kind of broke through in something big there as well, but that kind of fell away as well because of that. So I didn't, I, I didn't really pursue the golf much further than that uh, because of that.
0: So, uh, by the way, I noticed, I'm, I'm saying I noticed, or am I losing the plot here? But I'm sure somewhere, maybe may on your website, I saw a mention of Will Proutfoot.
1: Um, it wasn't, my, it wasn't on my website, but we maybe had a conversation. I, I trained, the, I trained with Wolf, I trained with a few different people, but Wolf is one of the ones I trained for uh, for hypnotherapy,
0: right? I don't know where I picked that up, but yeah, I mean, Wolf is he still he's, he's passed oh, he, away, he's hasn't passed
1: he? Away. He was really old when I seen him, that was a way back in the 90s. He's
0: torn about half of Scarborough, didn't he?
1: Aye, ah, Scarborough, that's right, yeah,
0: yeah, a lot of supermarkets and stuff. Um, it's yeah, not particularly relevant to viewers or listeners unless you know england and scarborough seaside resort although it is interesting that he mainly taught well he did just teach hypnotherapy but scarborough used to be a hotbed for stage hypnosis as
1: well didn't it
0: with robert alpin and the likes
1: in fact when i was doing scarborough i was looking at some of the theatres down there but i'm not sure if i remember i think ken webster was doing this the theatres down at that time he, he, he Right, I know
0: it well, he was in the 90, early 90s, late 80s, I think.
1: Yeah, That's, yeah, it was the 90s. I was, uh, when would I, it'd be '92, '93 when I was down, seeing my Proudfoot, And I had a look around, a scout around, and I'm sure Ken Webster was already doing it down there. Yeah,
0: I think he was. So, um, can you see segue? I'm trying to keep this on a rough timeline, and I'm missing, I'm probably screwing up part of me, but as I recall, there was the golf, and then I think it's probably we're probably on the timeline around where you, you end up deciding to do the Edinburgh
1: Festival. I now, did, yeah, I did the Edinburgh Festival because I remember around about that time, there was a recession for years and all my, all my, no matter what happened throughout my life, if I ever opened up a drawer, I always had a wad of cash. I always had money to spend because it was always easy money to make doing something. But yeah. when the recession hit in about 2008, um, that drawer was empty and I lost all my uh, business clients it went really, really quiet. And I basically was racking my head to just try and get something that was working. And so I went back to stage hypnosis again. I just went back to it. I actually noticed again, it was another opportunity. What happened was the Virgin Picture House in Northern Road um, was a place for um, mostly music. And at night it would become like a big uh, nightclub. Mm-hmm. But then what happened was the nightclub up the road that sold them the venue or leased them the venue or whatever in their deeds said they couldn't actually use it as a nightclub anymore. So they had their lawyers working on this. So while the lawyers were working on this, this place was empty. So I walked in off the street again and uh, managed to get the, um, they, they financed it. They financed it and they paid for all my posters, everything. So I managed yes. to get that again. So it was another opportunistic, opportunistic uh, uh, thing. And that's how we got the Edinburgh Festival one going.
0: Definite, definite lessons to be learned in this interview, viewers and listeners, about getting off your ass and making things happen, and keeping your eyes and ears open, and finding opportunities and taking action on them. Yeah, definitely.
1: And it's sorry, just to say that it was yeah. the same in the audience as well. The manager used to have used to have a late night show um, at the weekends, and he had messed it all up, and people weren't turning up. And so again, I found out that they weren't using this thousand seater at midnight. That's why it was a midnight show. And I walked in and he was about to lose his job and everything and I was like his saviour. He was begging me, he was actually begging me to do it. So again it's like you've got to look out for opportunities I think. There's also an opportunity there if you look.
0: Nice, nice. Um, so what what followed that? Because after that I don't really, I know a little bit about, but that's not really hypno-relevant, I know you dipped into various different entrepreneurial parts but what? Where, where, where did things head then? What are you up
1: to now? Well, what happened is very, very briefly, I, I got fed up with it all and I became really um, introverted and I sat behind here, I learned SEO and, I, and I, had, uh, I, uh, I had an online business. And then that came to an end of it. And just before this all fell apart with what's happening, I started to go back out to do talks again. I was getting into some really good, some good networks and I was going to bring Advanced Mind back with a lot of the new stuff that I've been sort of looking at over the years. And um, so, uh, a lot of it was put on hold, but for example, I'm working with a client right now who's based in Germany, and what I'm doing now is I'm helping um, companies um, attract better clients and close uh, high-value uh, contracts, which is what I started to do back then. And so, for example, the person I'm working with right now, is a, he's, he's um, part of a, a software company which was based in Scotland but they're now opening up in Germany and I'm helping him by helping him uh, develop a completely whole new um, sales process so they can go out and close these deals so and that's what that's what I was doing uh, before the recession before and I would work with people like uh, Mercedes Benz another one that I talk about um, which I was quite proud of at the time I worked with uh, Bernardo's the um, children's charity mm-hmm. and um, they had a corporate um, donation of I think it was 250,000 pounds but they needed a million pounds for the whole, um, it was a sex a sexual abuse uh, um, place they wanted to for kids and um, they needed the full million pounds and I coached them and told them exactly what to say word for word and they went in to see the bank for the second uh, time and they came out with the full one million pounds commitment so that was a jump of 750,000 pounds in one meeting. And they came out with all the extra stuff. They offered to pay for all their uh, colored print work. They gave them staff on open days and everything. So. I'm
0: gonna guess, and um, by all means tell me if I'm way off the mark and wrong here. I'm just gonna guess based on what I would do in that situation. Sure. I'm guessing you you showed them how to elicit um, emotional states and the, the the people who were the decision makers, uh, especially in relation to any children or grandchildren or nephews, nieces, any child connection relevant to them and perhaps conjured up mental images of this will, without directly saying it, this will avoid your children being
1: uh, sexually abused? Uh-huh. Actually, it was much simpler than that. Well, oh, okay. Because right, what I do is I actually look for programs already in people, activate them and redirect them where you want them to go, right? So I obviously couldn't go in with them. So I said to him, is there any sort of words or phrases that they get excited about, kind of they get all kind of animated about? And he says, well, they keep telling us, they keep telling us we're driven and committed, we're driven and committed all the time. I says, well, that's great. That's a corporate um, uh, program. Yeah. Put put into them, right? I say, so what you do is you go in, right? And you, first of all, you get rapport, you be really nice, you do your small talk, and then you grovel to them a little bit. And you say, look, thanks, thanks for that 250,000 pounds. right.'" and I wanted them to do this on the table with their hands, make it look small, and you say, that's a fantastic start, right? <laughs> but, <laughs> that's uh, a fantastic start. I says, however, being driven and committed, when you fire these words back to people, you reactivate the program, right? But being driven, com- being driven and committed means seeing things all the way through to the end, and you make a big thing like that. And what I'm really worried about now is, maybe that we have started, I'm worried that we can't actually finish it and it all falls apart. And then you do that and you wave, wave it off the desk and then you sit there and say, can you help us? And you shut up. <laughs> you don't say anything else and you just sit there with the silence. And what happened is they all looked at each other, spoke for a minute and they came up with the £1 million and everything. That, that that was as simple as that. Nice. Nice. Bloody oh hell. So that, that's the kind of stuff that I'm really interested in now. I'm loving, I'm, I really want to get into positions where I'm working with people at that level where there's, and it's not because of the amount of money. It's just something that I get a real kick off, being able to do. To hopefully be able to do simple things like that that just tip things over. And uh, that's the stuff I really love doing. That's what I'm trying to get into at the moment. And um, so that's where I'm at the moment.
0: So anyone watching or listening who is at the very early stages of their career, and we are talking sort of either... Uh, therapeutically or motivationally persuasionally now more so than stage stuff Um, what would your advice be to them in terms of what route to go in terms of learning techniques and stuff I mean I don't know what your opinion is but my opinion is that a conventional NLP course a good 80% of it's a pile of shite in the real world yeah there's 20% that is relevant that you
1: can use and I would agree so. Um, I, I mean, I, I would still, I, I still wouldn't stop anybody doing NLP courses if they wanted to do it, because I still think they're good. But in the real world, it's different. But I'll tell you what, how I'll tell you, how I was able to get all these kind of results and do uh, yeah. what it was, because when I was first learning hypnosis, before I did any training, I would get books. And even when I was learning the stage stuff, all oh, my lights just went out again. <laughs> I bought this light; it just goes out. Well, I'll just leave it. Anyway. Try, trying to look good and i'm now looking like a like anyway so oh there you go when i when i was learning stage hypnosis even for example right uh i used to practice on myself i used to see if i could give myself a key reinduction induction word. so i would walk about the house and i would say sleep and i would actually put myself into sleep i would give myself an um, uh, uh, arm uh, catalepsy right so i'm always a firm believer if you're going to be a hypnotist you have to become really good at hypnotizing yourself and so what I would do, like I always wanted to get these re- results and apply hypnosis in areas that I've never really seen other people teach or show you to do it. So I used to visualize and hypnotize myself to be able to get these results, and somehow I found a way to do it. So if you're just starting out right now, and even if you've just got some books or some uh, uh, um, audio courses or, or whatever it is that you've got, I would my big ad- my biggest advice would be get, would be get really really good understanding how these techniques work by doing them on yourself and start hypnotizing yourself and start focusing on what you want that way and start amplifying it. And I believe if you do that, the rest will come anyway, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, oh yeah, it makes sense. I, I mean, I don't agree with people just for the sake of it on these podcasts, as people know, and I largely agree with you, but by the same token, I genuinely believe hypnosis is bullshit. Well, I know and, you that, do. and that self-hypnosis is bullshit. It's just conditioning, mind programming, affirmations, whatever, which doesn't mean it doesn't have beneficial value. It does have beneficial value, It's just not necessarily in the manner that people would say. But the context from which I would wholeheartedly agree with you, if however it works, is semi-irrelevant. It's a pointless debate, really, is that through coming to a belief system yourself as the hypnotist that these things work. So you've got 100% faith, conviction and confidence in the results they can produce that therefore will give you that conviction, confidence and faith, which you will then both verbally and non verbally transmit to your clients will massively make the results you get better because people will pick up on the fact you've got that top faith, conviction and confidence.
1: See, the way I look at it, there's also a spectrum in everything in life. There's night, day, good, bad, all that kind of stuff, right? So in hypnosis, you'll get people who totally believe in hypnosis. You'll get people who think it's totally um, bullshit. So there's a spectrum. That's just how it is, right? So the the, the way, when I talk about hypnosis, I don't talk about hypnosis in the normal sense of the word. I'm just talking about how the mind works, basically. And (laughs) What I like to think, what I I, I try and say to people is so that we can agree on something, if you actually look up the dictionary definitions of words like trance, all it just means is an internal focus. It's just a simple, they really are simple, and when you actually boil it down to the actual basic words of what these things mean, then we can all agree, we can all start to agree. No,
0: in that context I'd a million percent agree with you, it's just when you get into all this nonsense about Different levels of um, hypnosis, see, you know, it's non-nabulistic. What? No. no, on stage they're either responsive or they're not. In therapy, they're either ready to get off their ass and change their life or they're not. It's my
1: but opinion. But the thing is, well, you still have to condition them. If you see what I mean, you still have to that. You still have to condition them before you can't just get somebody on the stage normally and take them straight to others. Sort of wide awake, running about. You still take them through a little bit of a process. So mm. what I noticed in life, for example, I see patterns in life. I see everything as a kind of a, as, as hypnosis, if you like, right? So an induction is just taking somebody from where they are to being suggestible, right? That And there's a, a series of things, rituals or placebo effects, whatever you want to call them, to take them from where they are to where they want to be. It's the same if somebody's depressed, they're in a depressed uh, state. And that induction would have been a series of events in their life that took them from being non-depressed to being depressed. So, yeah. so, so, every so. When you start to see these patterns everywhere, uh, then that gives you the ability to sort of like go on and, for example, working with companies and sales uh, people and using hypnosis in a way that's out with the normal um, boundaries, if you see what I mean. Because I see everything as an induction and a and a, and a, and a trance. And in a trance, all I'm talking about is the current subjective uh, configuration, if you like. You know, you know what it's like when you're depressed. Everything looks really. The world looks like shit. Looks like you're not going to get anywhere. And then when you come out of that depression, you look back and you think, Chris, what was that all about? Well, Mm. you'd just come out of a trance or a a subjective um, configuration, if you like. And the way I look at it, and and what I'm saying is not the truth, it's just the way I look at it. I think trance to people is like what water is to fish. Fish can't live out of water and people can't live out. They're always in some kind of configuration. They're always viewing the world in a certain way. And that's what oh, yeah. is. it's just guiding people into in all these different um, ways of looking at things, really.
0: Now, with that definition, I agree with you a million percent. Yeah, because, of course, it's uh, the key word there is that it's something natural. It's not some th- It's not a special state like some people. No, it's not a special state, no. Um, cool. So what, what, what... I mean, I'm guessing part of this is going to be that when this... C- Virus, COVID, coronavirus stuff—that's happening still in January, uh, twenty twenty-one. In case you're finding this in years to come, um, it tails off that you'll get back into what you'd started planting the seeds for in the companies. Have you got any other kind of goals? Without obviously giving away any trade secrets, but uh, any plot you know
1: know—long-term
0: things that you want to achieve in the future.
1: Um, do you know? I just want to make enough money to be left alone. <laughs> I don't know if that makes sense. I just want freedom really. I'm not really wanting any fame or fortune. And I'm just want to make enough money to be able to live my life the way I want. And obviously I would like to do some traveling. and um, stuff that I'm working on right now, if any any of people are interested in it, they can do it. I'll um it's not quite linked up right now, but one of the one of the, one of my lead magnets that I'm putting out right now to for the businesses is and it's relevant to a lot of people right now because there's been this huge shift. To online and zoom i've actually looked it up there is a there is a condition of anxiety on zoom and a lot of people um, it's quite like stage fright a lot of people who especially if they're dealing with business and their, their livelihood depends upon it yeah. they really really struggle to sell or have meetings that are important to them on zoom and also sell over the over the uh, over the phone so my lead magnet i've got a i've got an mp3 i think i spent about 40 hours uh, putting it together all the all the different uh, what do you call it the multi-level you know the track multi-tracks and uh, isochronic tones and all. Oh,
0: isochronic subliminals yeah. um, all those
1: a, that's my lead magnet at the moment so hopefully i'm going to be doing that and then basically i'm going to i'm trying to get companies signed up to like a six-month program i've already got one person on it so that's my goal sure. at the moment really is to just is to scale that up and just make enough money to uh my highest value is freedom. It's just to just to just to be free to do what I want, really. Yeah, which is an oxymoron. Freedom doesn't cost
0: anything, but you need a certain amount of what people perceive to be money mm-hmm. to have freedom. But as, um, crack it, fundamental block. Oh, the so many hour work week. Tim Ferriss. Tim Ferriss. Uh, but so many i've forgotten how many hours work week it is but it's like hardly working you can harness one of his examples is you know if you get stuff running on the internet and you get to a point where in england you've got a thousand pound a month sterling coming in profit which isn't a huge amount in england that if you were to go and uh, find somewhere like india or similar where you could live in the son that you could rent a a property and have staff working for you and dine out and drink and live like a king for less than a thousand pounds sterling a month so it's about harnessing that's right what what you've got there so Mm. i mean do you think you'll move somewhere else in the world when you at some point
1: well, yeah, yeah, well, my last internet business, for about four years I got, uh, my income was totally passive. It was a, it was a website that got uh, personal injury uh, leads and um, I didn't do any, And last year I was planning to go away for six months, just travel because of my money was coming in. But then... And then
0: this nightmare
1: happened. This happened and then Google changed and everything just all happened in a winner. So, yeah. the hell. You, you couldn't
0: make it up, could you? We're getting close to the end. Um, time just the like that thank you for being so open and honest uh, let's see how open and honest I can make you with the last couple of questions we're going to ask you one therapy question and then one uh, sorry one stage hypnosis related question one therapy related question it's effectively the same question but in two different areas namely stage hypnosis wise what's the most bizarre unusual unexpected? Something of that type of ilk thing that's happened to you when you were doing stage
1: hypnosis shows. There's been a few, but the first one that jumps into my mind. I also remember the Odeon, They were doing um, Tim Roth, and oh, there was a there was a uh, one of these Scottish one of the Scottish movies were opening. They had the Gallade in there, and my show was the night before uh, them, and. Um, I remember a girl got on stage and she just lay there, she was a sleeper, she just lay on the stage for the whole duration of the show. And at the end of the show, she was still lying there. So I tried to wake her up and she had a, a took her hair back and she had a hearing aid in that side area. So ah. I took her hair back on that side and she had a hearing aid on that side of the ear. She was completely deaf. So we couldn't wake her up. So we lifted her up and we put her on a seat, we put her lights on and then all the men were working on the stage for this big uh, film premiere the next again day. So, if this was going to go wrong, it was going to get like a huge amount of attraction, attention. So, we sat there and I tried for ages. A boyfriend came down and says, Oh, don't worry about it. I'll just throw over on my shoulder and take her home. I'll throw her in the run. <laughs> I says, No, you can't actually. No, you can't do that. And anyway, so what happened was, and all these uh, people were there at the back watching uh, to do with this um, setting up the stage for the premiere, which they we were all getting really interested in it. And so, we turned up the volume in the, uh, the hearing aids and all she did was she just started like going con- like a convulsion so we turned them back down again and i thought what we're going to do we brought a bowl of water right and we tripled the water over her forehead this went on for 45 minutes we couldn't get her out right and eventually she she woke up the lights were on she now had a, she now had a completely different stage built around her so, <laughs> so she, <laughs> She didn't know where she was. And I said, do you know where you are? She goes, yeah, I'm in St. James's shopping centre with my mum and dad. And I says, no, you're not. I says, so I pulled her boyfriend down, right? And her boyfriend came down, she didn't recognise him. She didn't know who he was. And I was beginning to wonder if he was some kind of pervert who just wanted to take her home. But um, so all I did was, again, it was just, um, I don't know if it was instinct or what, but basically what I did was, I took her bite. She thought she was um, with her, her parents. So I took her by the hand and squeezed her by the hand. I don't know if that was an anchor or not, but she relaxed and then started to come to and she seemed to be okay and she left with her boyfriend, but that was one of the most bizarre things. Pretty bizarre, yeah.
0: Um, Same question, but in the sort of more therapy or motivational
1: arena. God, I've heard a few of them really. Um, What would be the, uh, the worst, the weirdest one? There's that many of them with the therapy, but there was, a, there was a couple of weird ones. There was a headmaster who came with OCD, a headmaster who couldn't who couldn't, <laughs> bear to see kids put a sweet in his mouth. He would actually start choking and he couldn't breathe. And so I tested it with him. I didn't have a sweet in my hand. I just picked up this imaginary sweet. He said, so what happens if I do this? And I did that. And he, stop it, stop it. <laughs> and he almost passed out. And um, I, I couldn't. He had OCD, had so uh, many different things wrong with him, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't really help him, eh? So I just really wanted to get, uh, get rid of him. And there was another female who was absolutely terrified of toilets, and she would spend her whole day, when she was going out, planning to go to places where she knew there was a toilet she could go into. There was only one or two toilets that she could go into, and they were quite well off. And her husband was really, uh, he wasn't angry, but he was a bit fed up, because they couldn't even go to a dinner party, they couldn't go holidays abroad because she was terrified that if she went there, she wouldn't be able to use the toilet. Bloody hell. So I think it worked with her. I never heard from her again. But um, that was a that was a weird one. There was one more weird one. There was a female who wanted to have kids, but she was absolutely terrified of dolls. And it was just a phobia. That was, she was terrified, absolutely. Any kids dolls in the room, she couldn't bear to be in a room with dolls. So So that phobia was
0: actually interfering with her...
1: She couldn't have kids she was terrified in case there was going to have... Even oh. things like teddy bears, dolls, anything like that, she was terrified of them. Wow. So there's been a few, a few like that.
0: I'm but sure a few will
1: come as well when I think about it.
0: Crazy how the mind works. Um tell us, I mean... <clears throat> verbally tell them what's the best way are people getting in contact with you if for example they're into golf and they want to get hold of your gold mine program or that they're into persuasion and they want to learn techniques that are not completely the same as what you're going to find in your conventional nlp trainings and books and they want to take their persuasion game as it was to the next level how do they get a hold
1: of you brian well I'm starting to put up new websites at the moment, but I've got a website at the moment, AMP, just amp.guru. And that's just my sign up page at the moment. It's really for companies now, but somebody could send me a a thing through that. Or if anybody wants to get my mailing list, it's amp.guru forward stroke free hypnosis. And that's what it's called um, powerful um, sales calls and video meetings online. So it's an MP3, the one I just mentioned. So they can I will
0: put those links below this video and below the, where the audio speaker is on all the uh, yeah. podcast platforms. I'll also put. Um, shall I book your Facebook? You can,
1: put, you can put my Facebook if you want. And my, also my uh, what was it? Um, I'll give you the. I'll, I'll have to find it, but I'll give you the. I'll give you a link to the thumper if anybody still wanting to buy the thumper code.
0: Oh, excellent! If you yeah, if you can send me if you can send me that across. Um, well, when we get off days. Mm. soon as you can find it because hopefully i'm going to get this up this afternoon so that people out there can learn from the past hour of insights and knowledge and wisdom from stage hypnosis hypnotherapy persuasion it's all there and as i always say get a notepad and pen watch or listen to this again only this time take notes and you'll actually realize as always that there is some pure gold to learn from in especially relating to persuasion in particular the examples with Bernardo's, um, that's cool, because as you saw, the actual way that Brian achieved it with his client bore basically very little relation whatsoever to the way I would have uh, gone about it other than using somebody's state, but in a, in a much simpler, uh, more elegant way. So hats off to you, sir. And thank you very much indeed for sharing with us. Okay, it's been a pleasure. Guys and girls, share this around, please. Give it likes and all that usual social media stuff. And then uh, chat regularly at hypnosisweek.com because we will be bringing you more than normal of these, given that it's um, we're still on lockdown in England. Bye for now. And stop.